I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The National Constitution Center recently launched the Constitution Drafting Project. We brought together three dream teams of leading constitutional scholars, Team Conservative, Team Progressive, and Team Libertarian, to draft and present their ideal constitutions. On today's We the People, we bring you a special episode to celebrate the launch of the project and to review the major proposals of each team. I'm joined by the leaders of our three dream teams. Caroline Fredrickson is the leader of Team Progressive, which includes Professor Jamal Green of Columbia Law School and Professor Melissa Murray of NYU School of Law. She is Distinguished Visitor from Practice at Georgetown Law Center, Senior Fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, and author of the books The Democracy Fix, Under the Bus, and The AOC Way, The Secrets of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Success. Carolyn, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. It's great to be with you. Ilya Shapiro is the leader of Team Libertarian, which also includes Timothy Sandifer, Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute, and Christina Mulligan, Vice Dean and Professor at Brooklyn Law School. Ilya is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and author of the book Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and Politics of America's Highest Court. Ilya, it is great to have you back on the show. Good to be back on. And Elon Worman is the leader of Team Conservative, which also includes Professor Robert P. George of Princeton University, Professor Michael McConnell of Stanford Law School, and Professor Colleen A. Sheehan of Villanova. Elon is Associate Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University and author of The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment. Elon, it is wonderful to have you with us. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here, so thank you so much. Elon, we will start with you because Team Conservative is presenting for the first time. In the introduction to your constitution, uh, you write, our country today is fraught with civil disrespect and all too often a disregard for the lives of others. Many of our proposed changes are designed to enable elected officials to break free of the grip of faction and once again to deliberate with the aim of listening attentively to, as well as educating public opinion and promoting justice and the public good. Tell us more about your constitution, which emphasizes the importance of Madisonian deliberation. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. And so the idea here is, you know, the libertarian constitution might focus predominantly on liberty and protecting liberty. And of course, there are structural protections for liberty. There's, there's no doubt about that. And the progressive constitution might focus on democratic accountability. You know, from the conservative perspective, self-government is not necessarily the same thing as, you know, unfiltered, unmediated, democratic choice, democratic accountability. Uh, there's a very thin line separating that kind of, you know, democracy, in our view, from, from populism. And so to, to the conservative mind, right, what, what we were going for, right, the idea is that self-government is, is government that's ultimately responsible to the people, but where the general will, the people's will, is refined and enlarged through, you know, a series of successive sort of intermediating institutions like the representative mechanism. And so the thought here was not to be more democratic, 
Not all the time, right? Sometimes we tried to be more democratic, but it was to increase deliberation, which is sometimes in tension with, with democracy. So the key innovation here, our most radical proposal, and we get that it's radical, okay? We get that this is radical. We make the Senate even less democratic than it already is. So everyone already complains that the Senate is anti-democratic. You have equal representation of the states. So, you know, a voter in California in the Senate has much less voting power than someone in, in you know, Wisconsin or Montana, which have you, and it's a pretty small body. We double down on this. We make the Senate 50, one per state, basically, which is closer to the original, you know, a size of, of 26 when there were the, the original 13 colonies. We... Um, originally debated, I don't know if I should confess this, we, we originally had them uh, uh, deliberate in secret and vote in secret, and we decided that that was too far in, in you know, the anti-democratic extreme. And so, and so we walked that back um, at some point after uh, a, you know, a, a series of deliberations. We, rec- we have one long nine-year term in the Senate, and we require them to take a pledge. We require them to take a pledge to legislate for the common good, for the national interest and not the interest of any, you know, party or class. And so, again, the idea is, what does it mean to be governed, you know, to be a self-governing society? It's, it's where we, the people, ultimately have political power through elections, but where our passions, right, the passions of faction, our passions are refined, they, our passions don't become into policy. It takes time and deliberation and reflection and refinement for the popular will to, to translate into policy. And so, you know, the, the, the biggest reflection of that is, is in the Senate. Another place, and, and then I'll stop for now, uh, I'll mention presidential selection. So we wanted to make presidential selection simultaneously more democratic and also less democratic in the sense of we thought that the current primary process, perhaps, you know, unsurprisingly, is not particularly good at identifying and selecting really meritorious choices, okay, to be candidate for president. You know, not to say that, that they aren't meritorious, but, but we can imagine much more meritorious candidates. At the same time, you know, the, the electoral college itself is, is been criticized as anti-democratic. So we wanted to create a process whereby the candidates would be selected in a less democratic way. One possibility was to have the parties do it. Uh, the political parties choose uh, uh, the candidates, but then have the, the, a national popular vote. Uh, for president where, you know, some number of states have to be carried, say 20, 20 of the states have to be carried. Um, so so this, the national popular majority is somewhat distributed uh, nationally, uh, geographically speaking. Um, and so the idea here was to make the ultimate vote, you know, on the second Tuesday of November or whatever it is, the first Tuesday of November or whatever it happens to be, more democratic, but that the candidate the choice of candidates would be less democratic, where the parties would have more of a role in selecting the candidates so that there'd be sort of meritorious choices. So that's just another example of of this tension that we tried to resolve throughout the document between democratic accountability and um, proper deliberation uh, with reflection and choice. Caroline, you and your colleagues write in your introduction to the progressive constitution as progressives, we believe in democracy rather than government by judiciary. At the heart of our progressive constitution is an accountable and inclusive political process. Tell us about the ways that the progressive constitution emphasizes democracy as well as equality. Well, it was very interesting listening to um, uh, Ilian talk about um, the, the conservative constitution, because there is definitely a very uh, big contrast between how we approached 
our work, and we do believe very much in democracy and equality. Um, and you know, people might be surprised in the way that we drafted, in that we spent a lot more focus on structural constitution than on the rights-bearing part of the constitution. And that is to a great extent because we think democracy is the best protection for fundamental rights. Um, there are some areas where we laid out a clearer protections for rights that we think are already should be protected under our constitution, but where there is some dispute. We do think that our constitution as it exists right now is not uh, as well designed as it could be to protect a democracy. And I think we've seen that as elections have played out. So we have really focused um, much more uh, in terms of developing a constitution that would ensure free and fair elections, uh, an accountable and inclusive uh, government, effective governance, um, we provide a mechanism to update the constitution that is more workable than the current process under Article 5. And we look to establish real equality. Um, in, in the structural side, um, you know, very much in contrast to the conservative constitution, we actually expand the size of the Senate. Um, we think it's a very unaccountable body as it already is. It's very undemocratic. Because we believe in democracy, we believe that there are already sufficient checks on sort of the uh, extreme populism that the conservatives may be uh, afraid of, that appear to have dictated a lot of their choices. Um, a six-year term is already quite long, but what we do is ensure that the vast swaths of the population that now go unrepresented in the Senate or underrepresented will get a greater voice. Um, and we look to do that by providing a senator for every state, but then allocating the additional Senate seats by a population ratios. Um, we also look to lengthen the, the service of House members from two to four years, and perhaps the conservatives would agree with this, but we do think the burdens of fundraising um, make um, service in the House much more about serving the campaign um, coffers than about serving the people. And we move that election to an off-year, non-presidential election year, so that the Congress is a better check on the presidency. And we look to um, get rid of the Electoral College because as was already mentioned, it is, uh, again, a reflection of a very anti-democratic viewpoint about the way that we should select our president and look to rank choice voting as a better mechanism to um, select the president. Um, so those are some very specific uh, areas in which we address the, the sort of structure of, of our elections. But we also believe that we need to have a process by which there can't be manipulation of electoral districts. Um, and gerrymandering needs to be addressed um, uh, frontally by a constitutional revision, I, as well as the excessive role of money in politics. And I know my libertarian friends will disagree on this one, um, but we think it's a very problematic um, uh, uh, part of our political system right now and a real misreading of the First Amendment. So we, even though we don't think Citizens uh, United was correctly decided, or Buckley, for that matter, we do uh, want to make it more explicit in our constitution that such regulation um, can move forward. Um, and so we, I know we'll, we'll talk a lot um, about the other provisions, but in terms of the kind of structural democratic uh, reforms that we envision, that is really um, sort of where we put our emphasis. Ilya, uh, you and your colleagues write, in your introduction to the libertarian constitution, this was probably an easier project for us than for our conservative and progressive counterparts, because the current U.S. Constitution is fundamentally a libertarian or more precisely a classical liberal document, so much so that at the outset we joked that all we needed to do was to add, and we mean it, at the end of every clause. Tell us more about the ways that the libertarian constitution 
emphasizes liberty. Yeah, we because we think that the existing constitution is already pretty pretty good uh, as long as you actually follow what it says, which we uh, have been observing in the breach for the last uh, number of decades. Um, after all, uh, the, the constitution set out a government of limited and enumerated powers, powers that are divided both horizontally among the three branches of the federal government and vertically in a federalist system that recognizes while limiting the sovereignty of states in order to protect the blessings of liberty. That is the American uh, idea. And we find it, uh, as you read uh, the first paragraph of our essay, that that's the uh, classical liberal ethos of, of our republic. That original structure provided a mechanism to preserve the full range of individual liberties because it largely withheld from government the power to violate them. And then the Reconstruction Amendments, what some call completing the Constitution uh, after the Civil War, further advanced that project by extending the Constitution's libertarian guarantees to protect against state violation, including eradicating slavery, which is the single greatest contradiction uh, to the American ethos. Now, unfortunately, many parts of our fundamentally libertarian Constitution, the existing one, particularly those that limit federal power, have been more often ignored or cleverly evaded than honored, especially by court decisions that have perverted the meaning of the document's text. And so our task was to clarify and sharpen those provisions, most notably the Commerce Clause, Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce that's been transformed into a charter of expansive federal power far beyond whatever was uh, envisioned or, or meant. Uh, of course, there have been some developments in the 230 years since the original Constitution and Bill of Rights took effect, and the 150 years since the post-Civil War amendments were ratified that have demonstrated certain deficiencies from a libertarian perspective. So out-of-control spending uh, necessitates a, a balanced budget requirement, except in emergencies. Today's imperial presidency, because Madison didn't uh, foresee that uh, uh, congressional uh, uh, parties uh, who are members of the same party as the president would just uh, uh, expand uh, executive power in that way. So the imperial presidency militates for a reweighing of checks and balances in, in various ways. We also couldn't help but add a few of those, and we mean it, provisions, the, the belt and suspenders just to be safe, and enhancing certain liberty enhancing um, or adding certain liberty enhancing reforms that were suggested by scholars such as Randy Barnett, Milton Friedman. Uh, like allowing the states, uh, if they achieve a certain supermajority, to um, uh, uh, reverse uh, federal regulations or even federal laws. And we borrowed new protections from several state constitutions. States have uh, historically borrowed from the federal one, but uh, there are state innovations, uh, you know, uh, 51 uh, uh, charters of, of freedom, if you will. Uh, and so we added prohibitions against so-called special laws or gifts of government funds, stronger security against warrantless searches and against the use of eminent domain and other forms of uh, property confiscation. Uh, in the spirit of focusing on drafting a libertarian constitution, we tried to avoid purely good government reforms that don't have clear libertari libertarian salience. So, you know, I could debate with, with Elon, with the uh, team conservative uh, various very interesting structural reforms. I kind of lean towards, uh, you know, leaving the Senate as is, but expanding the House significantly. So the number of uh, constituents for each representative would be about the same as, um, you know, or at least getting towards what it was originally to have the House be more accountable. By the way, that would solve largely the electoral college problem that the 
progressives have, because then the number of electors in the more populous states would would grow as well. But that's not a libertarian reform. We thought uh, all of these kinds of you know term limits, things like that. We thought that's kind of good government or too political sciency, and we really wanted to stick to. Uh, constitutional structure and uh, theory of rights. But again, we did focus, as the original Constitution's authors did, on protecting negative rights, rights against being interfered with, instead of creating positive rights, such as the right to education or healthcare, other things that have to be provided by others. We were actually surprised that Team Progressive didn't have more of these sorts of things, relying instead on uh, what to our mind is unchecked democracy to provide those sorts of what would be presumably popular uh, goods. Classical liberal theory holds that the only valid rights are things like free speech, private property, and the right to be left alone. So uh, our libertarian constitution, like the constitution of 1787, uh, provides and indeed precludes uh, such free entitlements, at least at the federal level. All right, now let's dig into the details of the proposals of each of the three teams. Uh, we the People friends, please check out the constitutions themselves. Go to constitutioncenter.org at the debate page, and we'll also post this link on our podcast page. Elon, you note that many of your reforms uh, having to do with the powers of Congress and the states are designed to promote deliberation and to ensure elected branches that focus less on re-election and more on legislating and governing in a deliberative way. You've already told us about the proposed uh, reform to the Senate, but you have many other proposed reforms, including increasing the terms of House members to three years, returning this election of senators to state legislators, adding an oath for senators, requiring them to pledge that they'll pursue the common good and the long-term welfare of the nation, and adding a veto for state governors. Give us a sense of this and other proposed reforms having to do with the powers of Congress and the states, as well as any, you know, texture about the kind of debates you had as you thought about how to promote Madisonian deliberation in proposing your reforms. Yeah. So um, one thing we do have in common with Team Progressive is we increase terms across the board. So we now do it on a three, six, and nine years. So House members have three years. The president has one single six-year term, can't run for re-election. This is actually something that the founders, uh, this was a version of the founders' initial proposal that was ultimately rejected, right, at the Constitutional Convention. And then senators also get one term uh, of nine years. So again, not just longer terms, so you don't have to constantly be running for re-election. But you, uh, you know, um, it actually gives you sort of this institutional expertise, and you don't have to constantly worry about raising money for re-election, and you don't have to worry about the political wins and how will this affect my re-election chances, and so on. So that was one, you know, big uh, set of things that we did. Um, we also uh, just in in Congress, we try to resurrect the legislative process itself. We, we we're, we're trying to make Congress great again, right? We're trying to make Congress legislate again by requiring it in, in our constitution. They are required to pass a budget on a three-year scale, you know, for, for each session. And it takes priority over all other legislation. So they, they, so Congress is the one that has to pass the budget and then all appropriations, you know, have to be raised before they can be spent, you know, in accordance with, with the budget resolution and so on. And so the idea is to get Congress uh, to govern here again and, and to deliberate again and to take its proper role. And we have a variety of reforms of the administrative state along this line. Uh, we accept um, you know, the inevitability, so to speak, of broad delegations of power, right? Not all 
delegations, we do sneak in implicitly a non-delegation clause, right, uh, in, in our constitution. Uh, but we also accept the inevitability of, of the delegation of, of substantial amounts of, of, of authority to the executive branch. And, and we try to uh, rein it in, though, by giving Congress a legislative veto on, on the back end. And I think the libertarian constitution does this too, or it could be the progressive one. And now I'm, I might be um, forgetting w- w- which one it is exactly, but, but we give Congress a back end check, um, which doesn't expire, by the way. They could always go back and just rescind regulations without uh, presidential approval, right? And, and, and we think that this sort of restores Congress's role. In, in terms of uh, private right, in terms of judicial cases, we also try to rein in the administrative state here by recognizing, we recognize that Congress can create administrative courts that hear public rights cases. In private rights cases, which today the administrative agencies routinely hear, we sort of provide a spin on uh, an idea that I'm actually proposing as legislation in, in Congress, uh, which would be to make administrative law judges make uh, their reports in private rights cases. This is like reports and recommendations that are then reviewed. The objections to the reports are reviewed de novo by district judge. And this way you solve the Article 3 problem by having you know de novo review by judges and so on. But the administrative process also resolves a lot of issues, right? I mean, you can't just rehear the whole thing. You have to give specific objections. So basically, administrative law judges become like magistrate judges. So again, all of these are proposals uh, to get Congress to legislate again, to get you know the executive and the courts to do their proper role again, all while accepting you know sort of the reality of, of modern governance and, and modern needs. Caroline, you propose a series of reforms to ensure effective governance as well as to provide what you call real checks and balances. And on the subject of the administrative state, you clarify that Congress can legislate in the general welfare. You give Congress clear authority to establish independent agencies. You permit Congress to pass law with legislative vetoes. There we go. And you also propose uh, to revise the impeachment power in significant ways. Tell us about the ways that you approach the question of congressional power. Well, I, you know, I think it's really interesting to hear from Ilan, um, uh, Ilan, sorry, uh, of the conservative constitution. And there are really interesting overlaps uh, and distinctions with the conservative constitution and also with the libertarian constitution in different ways. So sort of a Venn diagram in some ways. Uh, we So we, we are interested in effective government as well as ensuring that Congress reasserts itself. And, and we think those things go together very much. Um, we, and we all know the famous quote from James Madison, uh, that ambition must be made to counteract ambition. Um, but it's not functioning that way. And, and Ilya and I are in agreement on this, that the, you know, that the, the presidency has become too powerful uh, and that Congress has withered. Um, and uh, it seems like the conservative constitution has that viewpoint. And so I think that's an interesting uh, point of agreement between all of them uh, uh, in thinking about how we actually address an overly robust presidency and the threat that it makes, um, we think, to democracy and equality, um, but certainly as well to liberty um, and to rule of law. So uh, like the conservative constitution, we do um, believe that a legislative veto should have some role and the problem with Congress right now is that, in fact, um, you know, the unanticipated rise of the parties um, really undermine the idea that there would be un- institutional independence and that each branch would protect its turf. Um, Congress has um, certainly failed to do that um, in many ways. A legislative veto would, would help ensure that. We also um, make more explicit 
the ability of Congress to engage in oversight. It's been particularly problematic during the Trump administration, but we all know that it has been a regular practice of the executive branch to resist and deny the ability of Congress to ensure that the programs that it has established through legislation are actually being run properly. And to Elon's point about budgeting, you know, it's very hard to do budgets if you don't have a sense of how the money is being spent. Is it being well spent? Um, and so thus, Congress really needs to have a more explicitly delineated uh, ability to engage in oversight. And we also share the viewpoint that there should be um, more accountability in the executive branch. And that is, again, not just the oversight, but um, changing and clarifying of the impeachment power. The impeachment power does not exist. And I, this has been clear, but we wanted to make it more explicit in the Constitution that there is does not need to be a crime committed for a president to be uh, impeached. We wanted to make it clear something that we think is already the case under the current constitution that an abuse of the public trust could be the basis. We also lower the vote threshold for impeachment. We change the way that the constitution can be amended uh, because again, we think it has become overly complicated and it's difficult to amend the constitution. We think it should not be so difficult. Uh, and so change the process to ensure that two thirds of the population, states representing two thirds of the population could get the same standing as two thirds of the states in the process of amending the constitution. So we, you know, we, we do address a number of other areas in which uh, we try and uh, establish effective governance, uh, but those are, are areas that we think are particularly important. Uh, Ilya, tell us about the libertarian approach to the powers of Congress and the states. It was fascinating to hear Carolyn identify areas of agreement and disagreement with the conservative constitution. If you could do the same, that would be great. You propose rewriting the Commerce Clause to capture a more pre-New Deal jurisprudence that would limit Congress's power. Uh, you uh, limit the sweep of the necessary and proper clause. And I think you're more skeptical about the administrative state than the progressives and the conservatives. On the other hand, like both of them, you revise the impeachment clause to make it clear that officials can be impeached for behavior that renders them unfit for office. I think that's actually an agreement among the three of you. So please identify agreement and disagreement when it comes to the powers of Congress and the states. Yeah, more federal officers, I think, need to be impeached. And we're not talking just about the president, uh, but uh, we, we, we do uh, make clear, as Caroline just did, that it goes beyond um, high crimes and misdemeanors and just, you know, being uh, unfit for office, although we didn't change the two-thirds requirement to convict and remove because we don't want it just to be a, a partisan thing uh, uh, every single time. Uh, with the Commerce Clause, yeah, we, we allow the federal government to regulate only actually interstate actual commerce, unlike today's legal precedent, which allows control over non-commercial activity and activities that take place wholly within one state, although we do allow for regulation of interstate pollution. So we actually have an explicit expansion of you know, what's now recognized as the EPA's power to control uh, both water and, and air that flows interstate. That is not commerce. So under an originalist reading of the Constitution, that should not, uh, you know, the, the, that power is not constitutional, but uh, we make it such. Uh, we uh, make explicit that the general welfare clause is a limitation, not a grant of power. That is, it refers to the general as opposed to the parochial or specific uh, welfare. We sharpen the necessary and proper clause to only allow laws incidental to the enumerated powers, not wholly new ones in kind of an 
endless string of knee bone connected to the shin bone reasoning that today's legal precedents uh, allow. Yeah, we are very skeptical of the administrative state. I don't know whether more or less or the same as the conservatives, probably more than the progressives, but we do put it even in our preamble. And frankly, a lot, I think, of what the conservatives do is sounds like a preamble, all these oaths and you know sentiments about the, the common good and uh, um, uh, uh, long-term welfare and you know, things like uh, natural law, you know, that, that that's great. These are all hortatory. Uh, and so we do put in our preamble that these ends shall be secured by the powers of this new government, which shall be divided into three branches and no branch shall exercise the authority of any other branch. So, um, uh, you know, we, uh, again, a lot of what we do is just very minute tweaks uh, to, to really say as, and we mean it. Uh, I think we only allow ourselves uh, one actual uh, quote unquote, uh, and we mean it at the very end, um, uh, the current 10th Amendment to say that the powers not expressly delegated are reserved to the states or to the people, and we mean it. But we make sure that the state power also is not unlimited because we are strong believers in the 14th Amendment. And so, um, you know, more explicitly spell out what now might be covered by substantive due process or what some, including myself, think should be covered under the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Uh, but, but in general, it, uh, we have a rebalancing of powers uh, and uh, you know, in infinite rights, if you will. Elon, tell us, please, about Team Conservative's proposals for reforming the presidency and the judiciary. Uh, you propose expanding, as you said, the president's term to six years and preventing presidents from running for re-election. Uh, tell us more about your amended electoral college impeachment process, uh, writing the president's removal power into the constitution, establishing a process for a state of emergency, as well as setting the number of justices at nine and setting Supreme Court justices terms to a single term of 18 years. Yeah. And so there isn't universal agreement on the 18-year term for Supreme Court justices, but there is an academic consensus now, I think, among sort of all all positions that there, you know, I mean, there are still some defenders of, of, of this lifetime tenure, right, for Supreme Court justices, but it does seem odd, right? As much as the conservatives liked President Trump's nominees, there is something really odd, you know, about President Trump in one term getting three nominees to the Supreme Court and President Bush in eight years got two, and President Obama in eight years got two, and we think it would it would reduce the temperature of the confirmation battles if 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 we had them in staggered you know eighteen year terms such that every two years there's a new appointment right so in the real constitution every president gets between two and four appointees in our constitution uh, you know with a six year term everyone will get three we think this it's just better that way right I mean some justices stay too long right for any number of reasons uh, they can have political retirements and uh, they can maneuver the retirements right and so th this would be this would be much much better we think we also put a provision to prevent court packing in the lower courts. Um, and we say that courts can only be expanded by one judge per court every two years. We, we think that will also solve that problem. Now, you know, Congress could still create new courts, right, and, and, and try to get around the restriction that way. But there's a political cost to doing it. I mean, and, 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 and that's fine. We just want Congress to have to eat the political cost of packing the court. Well, we also, the lower courts, well, we also want to create the opportunity for the natural expansion of the judiciary. Uh, in terms of, you know, the presidential selection process, 
We had actually quite a bit of disagreement. We spent the most time, uh, which is why it took us so long, sorry, uh, you know, uh, discussing the presidential selection process because the initial proposal that we debated um, would have had actually sort of three phases to it. First, the state legislatures would nominate you know, worthy candidates, right? So the state legislatures would nominate. And among anyone receiving a, a nomination from the state legislature, the political parties would then choose them, right? The political parties would choose their candidates. Uh, and then there would be a national sort of pop, pop, popular vote. And this, again, gave the parties the ability to choose meritorious candidates because we think the parties are self-interested. They're interested in self-preservation. They're interested in, in, in choosing someone who they think can win, presumably who's not crazy, right? So we think that the parties would actually be pretty good. Now, then we hit a snag because we had four members, two of whom did not want to mention political parties in the Constitution. They wanted to be true, you know, to the George Washington sort of view that that political parties, you know, are are you know that there's something about small r republicanism that's worth preserving that's that's apolitical that's not tethered to parties to actual political parties and then two of us you know thought that look parties are inevitable why you know turn a blind eye to to the inevitable parties in fact are salutary in a, in a way right it can't, we can't think of sort of a better mechanism to channel political disagreements than the political party system and so we we had that debate and and we ultimately decided not to mention parties until let the state legislatures drive the nomination process. But we assume, we assume that the political parties will be organizing, you know, these various state legislatures that are nominating individuals for president. And, you know, the, the person with the most nominations um, will, will be a candidate, you know, the top two and so on. And, and we try to do it in a way to ensure that the two major parties, which we don't explicitly mention, but again, <laughs> We know they're there. Uh, you know, we'll always get one of the one of the candidates. So that's what we did for you know to president's selection. Uh, you mentioned a lot of other things on impeachment. I'll say we also clarified that the standard doesn't require a crime. It's not just any crime, but it also doesn't have to be a crime, right? It has to be sufficiently important political, you know, or criminal uh, offense. But the other thing that we do, and this is a theme of our Constitution elsewhere, is we have a three-fifths voting rule in Congress for a lot of specified things where we think there should be bipartisan buy-in, like terminating a war, declaring emergencies, um, and impeachment, both to impeach and to convict is a three-fifths vote in our Constitution. This makes it harder to impeach than the current Constitution, which is just a majority vote in the House, and it makes it easier to convict than the current Constitution, which requires two-thirds, right? The, the problem today is arguably the last two impeachments, right? One, Democrats impeaching a Republican president, and then 20 years ago, Republicans impeaching a Democratic president. It's we had an impeachment that was almost... It, 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 there's almost zero chance it would have ended up in a conviction. So we just go through a national circus for zero chance that it's going to end up in a, in a conviction. Well, by doing three-fifths for both, it increases you know, uh, the, the bipartisan buy-in in, at the front end, but it also makes it likelier for conviction on, uh, on the back end. And we think that would be uh, an improvement to the impeachment process altogether. Caroline, tell us about Team Progress's proposals for the presidency and the courts for the presidency, you propose revising the vesting clause to limit presidential power. For the court, this, I think, is another surprising and significant area of agreement. You also would set an 18-year term for the Supreme Court. Uh, tell us more. 
Right. Well, we wanted to make it clear that this theory of unitary executive is not one that can be understood to come from our constitution. We don't believe it comes from the current constitution. We want to make sure that that uh, viewpoint uh, is effectively uh, repelled by the language that we use. Currently, some people argue that the president really has an extraordinary amount of power that's much more monarchical than we think could have been envisioned by the founders um, who were in a revolution against uh, an absolute monarch. So we want to make it clear that there was otherwise uh, legal limits that could be placed. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, we do establish a different selection process uh, for the president, uh, which we think will make the president much more accountable by eliminating the Electoral College and using a ranked choice voting method. As we all know that the current election uh, system means that certain states are attended to to a much greater extent, not just by candidates, but the president as well after election. Um, either for purposes of re-election or for purposes of helping somebody following in his and in, in the future soon, hopefully, her footsteps um, who may want to become the next candidate for the presidency. Having ranked choice voting and no electoral college would ensure that the presidential candidates were attentive to the entire United States and not just to Ohio, Wisconsin, Florida. Um, now, um, Ilan um, probably appreciates that Arizona has become much more important in, in this whole um, uh, effort, but nonetheless, I think you know there there are states that get neglected, and uh, and it happens not just as a campaign matter, but also as a, a public policy matter as a consequence of the campaigns. And you know, we think we all share a belief that the president uh, needs to be more accountable through a change in the impeachment process. Um, I think it's very interesting the conservative approach, actually, uh, in terms of applying a three-fifths vote on the House. Um, we did make a three-fifths vote in the Senate ourselves to make it easier to convict, um, but didn't make the change in the House. I think it's a place where where we'd all have a, a convention, a constitutional convention, we might be able to come to agreement um, on, on that kind of a change. It certainly seems to be very uh, commonsensical. Um, so those are, um, in essence, um, uh, the some of the major changes um, in the presidency um, but we did also uh, agree with the other uh, teams. I don't think that the libertarian constitution made this in their text, although I may be misremembering um, that we all share the agreement, though, that term limits for judges and certainly for Supreme Court justices are not only appropriate but necessary. Um, I, you know, I, I, I read articles by people like Stephen Calabresi, who founded the Federalist Society, advocating an 18-year term, um, and for many of the same arguments that I would use which is that uh, the judiciary has certainly changed in terms of how, and, and Supreme Court uh, above all, in, in terms of how service unfolds. That is, it used to be for Supreme Court justices, a kind of capstone of a career. Um, I'd like to think of Earl Warren um, as a great justice um, who came to the Supreme Court after being governor of California, um, had a great deal of experience and understanding of government and how, and, and, uh, states uh, and how the, the system um, did function and should function and approach the Constitution from, um, from that vantage point. Um, it doesn't happen anymore. Um, we now have a, a class of, of, of justices who, who are sort of lifetime, more or less, and are being appointed at an earlier and earlier age and don't have that kind of life experience. I would also argue, though, that, that the accretion of power to the judiciary is very damaging to a democracy. So an 18-year term um, which was Elon says, um, you know, would ensure that 
uh, presidents had a somewhat more equal role um, between presidencies in appointing justices because the mechanism would be to give each president two appointments uh, in our process. Um, we think it uh, uh, would be a very important uh, reform um, and would do a lot to ensure that the sort of the role of the, the branches was appropriately calibrated again, that the separation of powers and checks and balances was better uh, designed uh, and did not give either such great power to the presidency or to the judiciary, uh, an unelected branch, but rather bring back Congress in its uh, allowing it to have a greater power that was envisioned under the Constitution. Ilya, tell us about Team Libertarians' thoughts on the reform of the presidency and the judiciary. Remarkably, you, like Team Progressive, propose rewriting the vesting clause to limit the president's power, although you may have a different approach to how you would rewrite it. So tell us about uh, that, as well as your proposals to revise impeachment, uh, where I think there is broad agreement. And then when it comes to the judiciary, you propose fewer changes, but did you consider term limits? And tell us about other changes you propose to the judiciary. Sure. Uh, well, we, we uh, I already talked about impeachment, but we, we clarified that the power of the executive branch is the power to execute the laws and not some broader or freestanding power that adds to something that's uh, in Article 1. Although we do uh, clean up the lines of separation of powers such that presidents are given the explicit power to exit treaties. That's sort of just assumed now. We clean up the appointment power. We state that no treaty or international agreement can expand congressional power or be domestically enforceable without enabling uh, legislation and uh, ratifying a recent Supreme Court decision for purposes of recess appointments. The Senate alone determines when it's uh, in recess. Most of these just make explicit what's already in the law. One thing we add that might some uh, listeners might find cute is that we eliminate the grotesque spectacle of the annual State of the Union address by requiring this information to be transmitted in written form as it was until Woodrow Wilson made this one of the many changes to our constitutional order that we think are uh, to the nation's detriment. And speaking of that, uh, the taxing power. We we remove the progressive era amendments of both the taxing power, the income tax, sorry, uh, and uh, prohibition, of course, get rid of that. We keep women voting, uh, but we make clear that Congress can only tax through a effectively a value-added tax uh, uh, nationally. Um, on the uh, judicial branch, yeah, we don't um, we don't fiddle with that too much. I personally uh, agree. I have you know one and a half, maybe two cheers for. Supreme Court term limits, uh, although we have to recognize that while that would get rid of the morbid uh, uh, health watches over octogenarian justices or politically timed retirements, it won't ideologically rebalance the court. It won't change the importance of the issues that the court rules on. I go into this in some depth in my book, uh, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations in the Politics of America's Highest Court. So, you know, we didn't we didn't fiddle with those kind of good government uh sort of uh, uh, provisions on the judicial branch. Although I personally, you know, my colleagues probably to a certain extent uh, would be fine or amenable to uh, at least uh, to Supreme Court limits. We do make sure that there is taxpayer standing to challenge allegedly unconstitutional uses of funds. And so, you know, we'd probably have a slew initially, at least of all sorts of uh, uh, lawsuits against all sorts of uh, 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 uses of congressional power of, of to spend on 
on this and that. And that's great. We'll quickly clarify what exactly Congress can and can't do under this uh, Constitution. And we add an open courts clause. This is borrowed from Oregon state constitution that forbids secret courts and also overrules legal precedent that hampers the checks and balances by preventing courts from considering certain kinds of lawsuits against the government. We uh, encourage uh, more lawsuits uh, against the government to make sure that it's uh, that the, that the judicial branch can indeed check and balance the political branches. Ilan, tell us, finally, in our last substantive round uh, about Team Conservatives' approach to fundamental rights. You insert key passages from the Declaration of Independence at the beginning of the Constitution. You don't add a laundry list of new rights, but you do add a few new rights, like explicit protection for parental rights and rights to conscience and association. That's something that you share with the other teams. And there are a whole bunch of other really interesting provisions, including placing limits on the national government's use of conscription, allowing for national criminal laws and preserving a commitment to birthright citizenship. Yes. So we do start with the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, there was a lot of debate on this too, believe it or not. Do we touch the preamble? I mean, in the spirit of, of, of this project, right, we, we made a lot of bold proposals. But at the end of the day, we're, we're team conservative. And notwithstanding that Ilya claims the Constitution is a classical liberal constitution. You know, I, I, maybe maybe that's part, partly true. I think conservatives could 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 claim it too. So maybe that's some a debate I could have with with Ilya a bit later. But we at least didn't want to touch the preamble. Surely conservatives can't touch the preamble. But we decided uh, that we ultimately wanted to connect the Constitution to sort of a higher law, right? Not necessarily you know a Christian higher law, but the the nat- the sort of the natural law of the Declaration of independence, right? It's often said that the Constitution of 1787 is sort of a repudiation of the principles of 1776, that it was an aristocratic revolution and so on. And we want to say, no, they're they're connected. There is a connection between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The Constitution completes the revolution, right? The, the The 1776, the Declaration of Independence is the first half of a revolution, right? It specifies that the existing government, right, is is unjust. And it says what a, a government must to do to be a just government, right? Uh, must secure our inalienable rights. But it doesn't actually specify the particular forms of, of, of the government, right? Uh, that would be consistent with that. And so we think the Constitution completes that revolution. And, and we wanted uh, that connection to be clear. We wanted, you know, to remind people that at the end of the day, you know, there is sort of this higher natural law out there that we should try to comport ourselves to. And, 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 and we wanted to, to, to at least make a mention of that. And so we do that in, in the preamble. So it's a preamble of the preamble, if you will. We just quote the Declaration of Independence. As for fundamental rights, we actually don't do much here beyond sort of clarification, right? So incorporate, well, well, actually, that's not, that's not entirely true, right? So there's disagreement among originalist scholars over whether the incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states is correct. Everyone thinks today uh, that, even among originalists, that the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment, right, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. A lot of originalists think that incorporates the Bill of Rights against the states. In the book you mentioned that I just I just published, uh, two weeks ago it came out, the second founding and introduction to the 14th Amendment, I claim I might be the only originalist, okay, under 60, who still thinks that incorporation of the Bill of Rights is probably wrong as an originalist matter because I claim that the privileges or immunities clause is 
is is an anti-discrimination provision. Really, it's it's what the Equal Protection Clause was supposed to be, right? It was supposed to be the Privileges or Immunities Clause was supposed to do a lot of that work, which I think means California can ban guns, right? It just it just means it can't say only black citizens can't own guns, right? Uh, so we we to 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 obviate any ambiguity, we just go ahead and incorporate every right. We have a new section. We restructure it, right? Um, uh, in the current Constitution, right? There's Article One, Section Nine, which is restrictions on Congress. Article One, Section Ten, which are restrictions on the states. We move most of the Bill of Rights to a new section. I think it's Section Twelve. I can't remember what it is exactly in our Constitution that says neither the states nor the United States shall. And that's where the First Amendment goes, and the Second Amendment goes, and you know, equal protection and due process and so on. So we solved sort of the incorporation problem directly that way. Um, then uh, on the citizenship question, we thought this would actually be um, the most controversial in, in both directions. Some conservatives would think it's controversial and, and, and some liberals and progressives would think it's controversial. We had a lot of debate about this and we ultimately decided to keep birthright citizenship because it has such a long history in the Anglo-American legal tradition and because there's this real risk uh, that some um, persons will be born citizens of no country, right, if we got rid of birthright citizenship. So we decided to keep birthright citizenship, but we did make a... a um, for apportionment purposes, for census purposes, for voting purposes, we did specify uh, that apportionment should be on the basis of, of citizens rather than persons. This should not be taken as an endorsement, by the way, of, of you know, the current administration's legal attack you know, uh, on, on, or legal claim that, that the current census clause allows them to do that. Right? We, we certainly don't take a position on that. But we specify citizens, and we think it's justified also by the concept of one person, one one vote, because otherwise, right, in, in states with a lot of non-citizens, the citizens who can vote have a lot more political power, right, because they have more representation in Congress because of persons who, 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 who can't vote, right, non-citizen persons uh, who live there. So that was sort of the trade-off we did. It, it took a lot of discussion and argument and debate, but we decided yes to birthright citizenship, but we would also limit apportionment to citizens as well. Caroline, tell us about Team Progressive's approach to fundamental rights. Like Team Conservative and Team Libertarian, you do propose clarifying the protections for freedom of conscience, uh, as well as uh, the right of association. You also propose uh, updating the Fourth Amendment for a digital age. Tell us about those proposals and more. Sure. Well, one of the things that we were very concerned about is, um, you know, not surprising, um, was establishing real equality. Um, equality, which is not something that really came into the Constitution initially, um, despite um, the reference in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, the Constitution itself um, made no such guarantees and, in fact, incorporated and, and made uh, accommodated the institution of slavery. Uh, and so we wanted to ensure that equality um, came into the Constitution in a more forceful way um, than um, even had been done in the Reconstruction amendments, because even though the 14th Amendment guarantees equal protection of law, it's, it's clear that all citizens were not recognized the same way. Um, and in, in time, there have been um, a, a welcomed and fought for expansion of the understanding of who's actually protected under the Constitution. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that there was um, more clarification, uh, in fact, in cementing the kinds of gains that have been made by uh, in incorporating them into the Constitution. So 
we try and uh, uh, update the the Reconstruction Amendments and uh, as well as the 19th Amendment, which extended the franchise to women um, and to make it more of uh, uh, an equal protection amendment. And so it would, in fact, provide for a treatment of women as equal citizens um, and provide for uh, gender, sexual orientation and gender identity uh, protection in the way that um, the Reconstruction Amendments addressed with a race. Um, and we deal with reproductive justice in the same way to ensure that uh, there are protections for pregnancy, childbirth, and all attendant conditions, which means the right whether to be pregnant or to terminate a pregnancy. Um, but we do, have, as you mentioned, Jeff, address a number of other things. Um, freedom of conscience was very important. Um, James Madison's original desire was not just to protect freedom of religion, but also freedom of conscience and thought. Um, and we wanted to ensure that that vision that Madison had um, was actually realized in our constitution. Um, and therefore that equal rights of conscience um, should have, its, have a prime place in the constitution so that um, we can ensure a, a broader understanding of freedom of thought and freedom of speech under our constitution. Um, and uh, you know, this is consistent with a more modern understanding of religious pluralism um, that uh, other countries have adopted um, and reflects the, the changing nature of spiritual life in the United States with many uh, Americans who are not affiliated with a particular uh, church uh, or, um, or religious institution uh, to give protections to those people as well, or maybe affiliated with none at all. Uh, we didn't, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, really lay out otherwise a, a kind of panoply of fundamental rights because um, as we uh, really analyzed the, the, the constitution that we thought would be the most protective uh, for our fundamental freedoms, we believe that that is based on a democratic process that works um, where people express their views uh, that way, um, rather than trying to anticipate every possible right that we might want to acknowledge. Um, that leads to a laundry list um, that could grow exceptionally long and things that you leave out uh, might be seen therefore to not be protected. So we wanted to approach it through mechanisms of ensuring certain fundamental rights that are so important in a democratic framework that allows democracy to function, but then really ensuring that the structural constitution was one where a democracy could work, where the right to vote is protected, where money doesn't buy politicians, where the president can be held in check when he and in the future she may misbehave in a way that harms the public trust. And we, we think that that, um, rather than a kind of an explicit uh, laying out of every single possible fundamental right, um, was a much more um, workable, um, but also effective way to protect those very fundamental rights. Ilya, uh, tell us about Team Libertarian and rights protection. You, too, clarify the protections for freedom of conscience and associations, as well as emphasizing protections for personal privacy under the Fourth Amendment. But you also emphasize the prefatory clause of the Second Amendment. You strengthen the takings clause. You check coercive plea bargaining in the Sixth Amendment. Uh, tell us about your approach to rights. Right. Um, well, first of all, we moved the Establishment Clause up into Article 1, because after all, it's a, a power that uh, Congress uh, does not have, we're saying, nor do any states have the power to uh, establish religion. And while we're still in Article 1, I should uh, uh, backfill some things I should have said earlier, some other structural things. For example, 
Um, we add a provision to prevent states from being coerced into accepting federal funds by dangling new federal funds. We enable states to to decline those funds with strings and instead choose to receive a block grant to be used for the same purpose. On immigration, we we have what we call uh, an Ellis Island Clause, restoring our immigration policy to what it was until about 100 years ago, allowing anyone to come to try to make their American dream as long as that person isn't a terrorist or a criminal and doesn't have a contagious disease. Uh, we thought about further restricting eligibility for public benefits, but then realized that under our system, there wouldn't be many public benefits available at the federal level, at least, and states can do what uh, rules uh, they wish. We also did away with the direct election of senators, or at least allowed states to choose, uh, repealing the 17th Amendment, uh, how they want to elect their senators. We actually don't think that will make much of a practical result because things were going towards the popular election of senators anyway. Now, Getting back to more to the more explicit rights, uh, as you said, uh, we uh, add the freedom of conscience to the free speech clause and combine both with the free press clause, because after all, the, 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 the free press clause protects uh, an activity, not a type of speaker. Uh, we expand the freedom of assembly clause to cover the freedom of association and non-association, again, making explicit what is largely already in the law. And we add a very important protection for a person's rights to the fruits of one's labors. We actually borrow this wording from the Missouri Constitution and add a catch-all right to live a peaceful life of one's choosing. We sort of like that elegant formulation of what's the essential libertarian uh, value. And contra the progressives, we add the explicit right to make political contributions, which of course is part of today's First Amendment, but is under uh, concentrated uh, attack. Uh, as you said, we we remove the prefatory militia part of the Second Amendment to make clear, to eliminate any confusion about the natural right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Uh, we strengthen the Fourth Amendment to, to clarify the warrant requirement. Uh, we make a number of important changes to the Fifth Amendment, uh, clarifying that the Double Jeopardy Clause does apply to dual sovereigns, so the state and federal government can't prosecute you for the same uh, crime. Uh, we eliminate the possibility of using eminent domain for private use, uh, so uh, reversing Kilo uh, versus New London. Uh, we require compensation for regulatory takings, borrowing from uh, Arizona uh, language. Uh, we only allow the use of eminent domain after the government has paid or secured just compensation. Um, uh, again, a strengthening of, of various properties. On those unenumerated rights, what, what's now covered by the 14th Amendment, uh, we replace you know, either substantive due process or privileges or immunities with natural or civil rights to translate the 19th century speak, even though the meaning is uh, really the same. And we add a new section to expand on the due process clause requiring the government to show a genuine reason for restricting or regulating any individual uh, liberty. This effectively eliminates rational basis review, a doctrine invented by courts in the 30s, to allow the government to do virtually anything it wants to, at least state governments, with respect to rights that judges consider uh, non-fundamental. Uh, and maybe at this point, it should be uh, uh, we should bring up another point of agreement among all three of us, and that's the uh, more explicit protection of the voting rights of District of Columbia residents, although each of us does this in a different way. Uh, Team Liberty decided to retrocede uh, all of D.C., except the explicitly federal buildings, lands, monuments, uh, back to Maryland. 
uh, and you know let uh, let let Maryland uh, you know thereby maybe gain a House seat or you know what what have you. Um, the I'll let the conservatives and progressives speak to this if if they want. Uh, I think the progressives just make D.C. into a state and and allow it that, that kind of representation. And the conservatives consider the people who have moved to D.C. Uh, for voting purposes, residents of the states uh, once they came, which is a, a creative solution. Well, it's time for closing thoughts on this absolutely fascinating project, which has surpassed all of our hopes at the Constitution Center for illuminating areas of agreement and disagreement among the three teams. Uh, the question I'll ask each of you is first, identify the areas of agreement and disagreement that you heard in, in this discussion between your Constitution and that of the other two constitutions. And more broadly, it strikes me that all three teams chose to reform the constitution rather than to replace it. Tell us about the experience of being a a framer with, with your fellow teammates and whether in thinking about our current constitution, you concluded that the reform that was necessary was uh, moderate or radical. Ilan, first thoughts to you. Yeah, well, uh, thanks again for the opportunity to participate in this project and to explain a little bit uh, about what we did. Uh, just starting at a high level of generality, I think what we what we can tease from the discussion in the three different constitutions is that at the end of the day, the task of writing a constitution for a free society like ours is a task of balancing competing ends and competing objectives. On the one hand, we, we all agree that we need to protect liberty. But on the other hand, we also recognize that part of having a constitution is it creates, you know, it creates the opportunity for ordinary politics. It channels ordinary politics, but it creates the opportunity to actually govern ourselves and, and, and to make, you know, and to make choices, political, moral, social, economic, choices as a society and that you know the task of writing this constitution is is a balance and the libertarians strike it a bit differently than the progressives and the progressives strike it a bit differently than the, than the conservatives but but it's all balancing these two different sort of ob- objectives um, and it's just very interesting to see how how we we do it in slightly different ways but but also come to agreement on a lot of things on the specific points of agreement I think you know we can see that that the judiciary like uh, something needs to be done with the Supreme Court you know, I know the libertarians didn't do this in the Constitution, but we know Ilya tends to agree with that uh, as well. Presidential power should be more specific. Uh, in our Constitution, we keep the vesting clause as it is, but we specify that the president is head of state. You know, we specify that the president superintends the execution of the law. We specify things about executive orders and 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 executive agreements, right? And so, so we think there's. I don't think anyone doubts that Article Two is. Sp- Sparse and and could use some clarity, right? So that's a position of of agreement that was that was enjoyable to hear. Um, impeachment, you know, we're all attuned to modern times, so so that was an interesting point uh, uh, of agreement. But just all in all, I, I, I'm I'm uh, sort of impressed by by all the team's efforts, you know, to 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 tackle just the problems of modern governance in, in really creative ways. Carolyn, your thoughts about significant areas of agreement and disagreement among the teams and whether the experience made you convinced that our constitution needs uh, moderate or, or radical reform. Uh, well, I, I mean, Elon hit on a lot of the main points. I was also, um, it's been very interesting to see um, where there has been significant agreement. Uh, I, you know, I think it's a uh, important to step back from the constitutional drafting for a minute to just think about what that reflects about the ability to rise above perhaps partisanship and polarization and think about how to improve 
um, the way our system functions, um, a, a general recognition that the that Article Two has need for clarification and need for further constraints on executive power. At least with the conservatives, we agree that Congress um, doesn't function the way it should. That there needs to be uh, a, a return to sort of Article One's uh, role as as establishing Congress as the first branch. Uh, and important, a, a generally shared understanding, uh, again, not as much in the libertarian constitution, but between all three of us about uh, a, a need for changes in the federal judiciary. Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's you know, it would, would give me hope that we could maybe have a constitutional convention and come out with at least some agreement. I don't know if we'd get to the end of the process. Um, but, you know, as, as a matter of, of, of disagreement, there is a disagreement about what some of the ills are that face our society. Um, we think that equality has been uh, neglected throughout uh, American history, starting with the original Constitution, which included slavery and which limited uh, political participation in the franchise to a very narrow swath of a white male property-owning Americans that women could not vote, and that even with the Reconstruction Amendments, which broadened our understanding of who uh, could participate in the political process as well as, of course, ending slavery. Real participation didn't happen for uh, blacks in the United States, certainly not for black women, uh, and that there, uh, there needed to be a greater emphasis on the congressional ability, a better understanding of congressional ability to actually enforce the provisions of the Reconstruction Amendments. Um, so I think, you know, those are, those are areas where I think, you know, from, from, the, from the progressive perspective, um, we really do think that the, that equality needs to be uh, enhanced, um, and that the political process is the best way when you have a process that, unlike the conservative constitution, takes away representation by uh, by even making the Senate even less representative. Um, that would just do further harm to those Americans who are already underrepresented. And we think that's a definitely would be a move in the wrong direction. Um, but so our emphasis is on democracy as the best way to enhance that equality, uh, to advance it in significant ways and to make sure that, um, there's no retrenchment towards a, a system in which fewer people have control of the levers of power and can shut others out, um, in a way that, uh, undermines what we think are the fundamental rights of all Americans. Ilya, the last word in this fascinating conversation is to you please identify the areas of agreement and disagreement that strike you between the libertarian, conservative, and progressive constitutions. Well, I think we've all discussed the similarities are wanting to push back on executive power. Um, uh, you know, I don't think there's much disagreement on, you know, that, that uh, uh, women and people of all races should be equal under the law. You know, I agree with, with uh, Carolyn that the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 19th amendments need to be uh, enforced as much as the original constitution. Uh, um, but I, I'm not sure what, you know, other than reversing the interpretations to the contrary and the practices to the contrary, I'm not sure that, um, you know, more really can or, or, or need be done in, in, in that regard with the judiciary, the fundamental problem isn't the structure. And this is why I only have one and a half or two chairs for, term limits, uh, you know, fundamentally, the reason why we have these cataclysmic ballot, uh, battles over the, uh, you know, every precious vacancy when it arises is because the court is very powerful, because the federal government is very powerful. 
And so the only way, you know, rather than nibbling around the edges or rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, and the Titanic is the, the ship of state, uh, you know, we have to enforce separation of powers and federalism so that Washington isn't making one size fits all uh, decisions for this uh, this big nation. And that's why we didn't, you know, feel the need. Tim Liberty didn't didn't feel the need to restructure the the court so much, and why I didn't feel the need to do so either. And uh, in my book, uh, a supreme disorder. But ultimately, you know, we we uh, took the existing constitution as our base. Uh, you know, again, for us, I think it was easy because we fundamentally think of this as a classical liberal document. Uh, but also because the incentive is is to do that. We are all, of course, busy constitutional lawyers. And uh, why start from scratch when we can just build on on uh, on Madison's genius? I will end on this one point of surprise. Uh, with both uh, what Team Conservative and Team Progressive did. And I'm glad that Team Conservative finally did submit their constitution. We thought for a while that this was going to be an unwritten constitution, that that was their conceit, just like our conceit was, and we mean it. But anyway, the fact that they both focused on structure rather than rights. You know, I was expecting Team Conservative to simply uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, Obergefell, and I guess Bostock now, although that's a statutory case. Uh, as as you know, key uh, aspects while they you know enhance their hortatory vision of the of the common good and what have you, but uh, in very different ways. Just as Team Progressive focused on democratization, uh, Team Conservative, I guess, focused on republicanization, if you will, small R, of course. Uh, and I don't disagree with a lot of uh, Elon with a lot of the structural changes that I suppose that 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 you put on. But uh, you know, I would ex- have expected both of them to be more right centered, but maybe that's my own libertarian projection. And maybe it's good to know that everyone, I guess, accepts a, a certain conception of a limited government, liberty-oriented uh, uh, constitution. Thank you so much, Elon Worman, Carolyn Fredrickson, and Ilya Shapiro for an extraordinarily illuminating discussion. And thanks to you and your teammates for your contributions. It has been inspiring to learn that all three of you decided, as Ilya just put it, uh, why start from scratch when you can begin with James Madison's genius. It is striking that all three of you emphasized uh, structural reforms rather than radical proposals. And it is encouraging to see how the basic principles of the United States Constitution continue to unite Uh, All of you, extremely distinguished scholars and Americans of very different perspectives. Elon, Caroline, Ilya, thanks so much to you and your teammates for your contributions to the National Constitution Center's Constitution Drafting Project. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you and take care. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn. Produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich, Tom Donnelly, and Nicholas Mosvick. The homework of the week? Friends, please read all three constitutions, the progressive, libertarian, and conservative constitutions, by visiting the Constitution Drafting Project. You can find that online at constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate and click on the special projects page. We'll also include the link in the resources page for this episode. And thank you so much, dear We the People friends, for your recent reviews of We the People on Apple Podcasts. They're incredibly meaningful to all of us at the We the People team. We so appreciate 
the fact that these episodes are meaningful for you and are very grateful for your feedback. And thanks for continuing to review us and recommend the show to friends and colleagues and anyone anywhere who is hungry for civil, meaningful, and illuminating constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount, including $1, to support our work and signal your support uh, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.